Welcome to another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and today, along with my two co-hosts, Maria Jose Munita and Mario Sakura, we have one of my co-hosts, <laughs> Seth Abram of the Fathoms Podcast. Greetings. And, and the 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 well-known integrated Enneagram account. Seth, how does it how does it feel? To be so to grace you with my presence, uh, it yes. feels pretty amazing. Yeah, okay. it's wonderful. No, really, uh, I am grateful to be uh, included and invited on. Thanks for having me. Well, we've Seth. been we've been churning through all the fathoms um, uh, cast uh, here. Cast. And, uh, <laughs> Don't feel that <laughs> special. <laughs> well, and, and it's not it's not like we saved you for last purposely. Uh, uh, you know, but uh, well, we just forgot about you. Here's the thing: I know actually that um, any of this is actually happening because of my initial connection in the first place. So that's right. That's right. It was it was Seth he that reached pulls out to me. This all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be nobody He's, if it wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I get it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, for sure. He's always Seth number one, and I'm Seth number two, and it really. <laughs> really you had to change your name. I, know, I, I, I yeah, I had to go so specifically far in China. He was Seth number two. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah Seth yeah. and I go way, 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 way back. Right. Uh, we've done music for years together. Have we traveled in China for a month together? And uh, he is the reason that I know about the Enneagram. Um, <laughs> yeah. I will admit uh, that. You're welcome. Yeah, and and you know, and like the butterfly flapping his wings in Africa, it has set <laughs> off this storm of quality Enneagram podcasts. There it, it is. is. Yeah. There it is. Amen. Uh, Seth, you have four lovely kids that I love <laughs> being around. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about them, and then what you do on the reg outside of family work? On the reg. Um, did you yeah, just make have, that up? Is that, is that something you're trying to make happen, Creek, on the reg? You know, it's with all this exposure on the podcast, I'm just trying to catch a cultural wind of some gotcha. sort. Okay. Did you have some coffee uh, before the, the episode? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm wired. I, I can tell. I've also been up since 6 a.m. So Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do have four littles. I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old. Whoa. Uh, so my home is, you know, <laughs> a bit chaotic. And uh, yeah, it, that is, you know, that is pretty consuming, pretty all-consuming, um, whether I like it to be or not. Uh, what else did you ask? What do you do what on the reg? What else did on the reg? That's right. On the reg. On the reg. Yeah, you know, um, I, I don't, it was probably in the last 10 years that um, I had an interesting experience in life where I was uh, sort of, I was forced to purchase a library. I forced myself. I, I nobody forced me, but I bought a, a library, and I've been building that such since. And uh, so I just read. That's pretty much what I what I do on my. It's big my money on that, isn't there? <laughs> yes, there is not. Um, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I I do a lot of reading. I go to the gym most days of the week. Uh, <laughs> what you're looking for? You're super swole. Yeah. How do you make yeah. your living, Seth? Oh. That's a good question. Um, I am, believe it or not, a pastor, as some people say. I don't know who says it that way, but uh, no, I'm a. I, I All of us who speak Spanish. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, first, though, initially, you know, my, what I did for uh, professionally for ten years was uh, as a musician. I was an artist, so I still do a bit of music on the side, but that's kind of taken a bit of a backseat. Uh, so, but I'm a songwriter. You know, I released. 
music into the to the world. Uh, it's just not. It's a little bit less of my focus at this point. As my you know responsibilities grew and uh, became more of a big deal in my life. So yeah, I'm also married. I do. I've been married for this year. It'll be 13 years. So to my amazing wife, uh, who's a type one. Hence the four kids. Hence the four children. Yes. 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 <laughs> yep. Um, so uh, we've mentioned the um, your integrated Enneagram Instagram page, right? So which which is quite good. There's a lot of good content on there. So I recommend to people uh, that they check it out. And uh, where can people find your music, Seth? Is it publicly available? Well, that's the th- that's the. Do you have to go to here. yard sales and you know find <laughs> yes, old seventy eight RPM records? You or? might be able to find it that way as well. But there's what's uh, called Bandcamp. If you go to Bandcamp.com/slash Seth Abram, I was on all the you know major channels, but there's I forget what it's called. But there's a there's a way that you gotta like in order to get your music onto Spotify and iTunes, you go through a third party or whatever. Anyway, you're supposed to re-up on that from time uh-huh. to time, and I did not. And so then my website, SethAbram.com, turned into, first, a German clothing store, second, a Chinese <laughs> porn website. <laughs> so, don't go there, okay? Don't go there. <laughs> So, Seth, we're having you on today for a few different reasons, one of which is you, you operate through the strategy of nine, is that correct? Most of the time, most days of the week, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what was that? What was that like <laughs> when I did it last? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a good question. You know, I. That's not how I thought you were going to frame this up, but uh, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> let me say it this way: one of my favorite ways to describe uh, for somebody who who is asking to get clarity on something that is. I would say sort of not here, <laughs> not tangible. This nine-ish experience is uh, telling you a story from uh, Tom Condon, who I know you all are familiar with. He uh, has the story of, uh, of a guy whose house blows up. And uh, obviously that's a big deal, right? If your house blew up, it'd be pretty sad and uh, scary and maybe traumatizing. Anyway, the next day, he's reading the paper. So this is an old story, okay? He's reading the newspaper. And uh, he sees you can enter a competition and uh, to win three different prizes. One of them is a brand new house. Well, that's convenient. I did, mine just blew up. Second one is a new car. That'd be helpful too. And then the third one is pancakes, <laughs> you know, breakfast. And uh, so the guy enters because he's like, yeah, well, I could use a house. And he finds out he won, but his friend approaches him and, and, and finds out first. And he said, dude, I'm so sorry. You got you won, but you got third place. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That's really hard, I know. And the guy says, that's all right. I love pancakes. That is a way to encompass, uh, I think, striving to feel peaceful in a, in a way. So, uh, so, so what I'm hearing there is a... Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I'm hearing a couple of things. Okay, some yeah. people might call that a tendency to reframe in a positive mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It's a way of sugarcoating disappointment and putting a mask over disappointment because I don't feel like I have the right or the value to express my disappointment, right? So tell me about both of those things. Yeah, um, the right to even be happy, uh, the right to have 
I would say there are other people that deserve, you know, houses more than me, you know, even if mine mm-hmm. just blew up. That's the thing is it's, it's a, there, there is a agreement that I feel like I made a long time ago that it's, I don't, I'm not enough of a person to have the, the same kind of rights that other people do um, when it comes to basic <laughs> significance of being a human being. Um, and so it's just on some level, it doesn't feel okay to receive that amount of value about myself, to say, to like, cer- like certifiably claim something as mine. You know, that just feels, even to say something like that, say what I just did, I felt some level of, whoa, 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 <laughs> like, don't say it that intense. Like, mine, you know, it's mine, right? I think, I don't know. That's what it feels safer to do. Yeah. It just, it feels very dangerous. Historically, I would say more so, it feels dangerous to make strong claims on things. I remember when I was a kid growing up, people would have these strong opinions about things and I'm like, wow, how does anyone do that? How could they? Like without having hearing all the information about all the sides, how could you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And I just, thought, I just, I really thought people were idiots, and in, in, on some level, because how could you make some bold claim about a single thing when you you have no idea? And how do you stand on that? That is no, it's wild to me. And you, and you yeah. still wanted to meet Mario? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just sitting back and waiting for that. To, to, uh, yeah. The Enneagram Type 9 we call striving to feel peaceful. Again, each of these Enneagram types is, you know, type is a label that we give to a person who exhibits certain characteristics, traits, behaviors, etc. And the core thing that this character is uh, displaying is a striving to feel peaceful, okay? A desire to create this sense of inner harmony, right? I always use the example of a lake, right, with no ripples in it, no waves. It's just placid and fine and nice and everything is good. That's how I want to feel. So that desire to feel peaceful shapes the way they think about things. They think about, you know, moving toward things that give them a sense of peacefulness and moving away from anything that feels ripply, right, that's, you know, uh, tumultuous. It's going to cause um, a lack of peace. Now, ironically, you know, everybody thinks, oh, nines are so easygoing and, you know, get along with everybody and they're nice. And they are until they aren't, right? Um, Most nines, when you get to spend some time with them, you will see flashes of temper. You will feel anger. You will feel, you will see assertiveness that comes out. But it's usually in response to not feeling peaceful, okay? They want to get back to feeling peaceful. And so that's when the anger and the aggression comes out. But in general, it's striving to feel peaceful. Now, this is, is true what Mario says. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. You don't threaten my autonomy. Yes. Especially yes. when I've been banking on it. Yes. Yes. You know, I'll, I'll share a story. So my mother was a nine and she, you know, very much a nine. She was the second oldest of 11 kids. And at a very young age, she was tasked with maintaining order amongst her younger siblings, right? Because both of her parents worked. And she knew that she would get into trouble if bad things happened while they were gone. And the only way at nine or 10 years old, she knew how to maintain order and discipline was through physical violence, right? So she would just beat the crap out of any of her younger siblings that got out of line. And to this day, you know, 70 years later, they're still terrified of her, 
right? But she's very much a nine. And you get to know her, you'll, you'll see that until you don't see it anymore. So this is one of the myths that we want to watch out for about nines is that they can't be assertive. They can't be angry. They can't be in positive ways as well. All right. They can be very accomplished people. Uh, one more point I'll make is about the connecting points. And I know we're going to come back and ask Seth about that a bit later. But the connection to point nine is what we call, again, the I'm sorry, the connection to point three is what we call the um, neglected strategy. Neglected strategy. Thank you, Maria. And again, it's not that nines can't be outstanding or don't want to be outstanding. There are many very accomplished nines, including our our guest here, but they don't want to be seen as trying to be accomplished. They don't want to be seen as seeking to be outstanding. Right. So it kind of has to happen discreetly for them. And then when we look at the other connecting points, point six, and what we see is that this striving to feel secure will reinforce striving to feel peaceful. Okay, I want consistency. I want uh, order. I want to identify and get rid of any threats that will undermine my peacefulness. Okay, So with all the types, we get this sort of movement around these three strategies in very specific ways that shape the uh, uh, the expression of the type. So, Seth, how did you learn about the Enneagram? And how did you discover your type? Good question. It was bad with numbers and math. and uh, uh, But I think it was around seven-ish years ago. The, the, the guys that started the church that I work for, um, they had, it was a part of the culture where they previously were in Chicago. And so they introduced it uh, into the, the staff culture here. Um, and I was immediately turned off to it. But frankly, it, it felt like at least how it was initially presented to me was like, we know what you are, you know, and like, no, you don't. <laughs> Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I have a sensitivity around like being put in boxes. It just feels like you're limiting me. Don't do that. Uh, you might think you know me and you've seen like 6% of what I'm comfortable showing you. Yeah. So I, I initially was present, it was presented that way. Uh, so I was very turned off, but I just remember um, somebody told me the best way to kind of figure out your type was read a book and with good descriptions. The one that makes you want to throw the book across the room is the one that names you. And um, I really resonate with that. It's true. It named a lot of these shadowy aspects, parts of me that I kind of have been like, eh, I don't want that to be true, but it's like a little bit, you know, it's I'm reading it and like that feels awesome because it's naming me, but I hate it. You know, I don't like that. So that was a lot of my for sh- like confirming uh, not, you know, the nine being primary in my my consciousness. But I, but I would say too, you know, I, I remember sitting in this, somebody paid for me to attend a two-day workshop because they felt like I wouldn't do it on my own, you know. I probably <laughs> left some space for them to think that. Um, Your seat would have been taken by Chinese pornographers. <laughs> right, <if> you, uh. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, yeah, and... <laughs> No, uh, I just remember sitting in that room the second day in the middle of the room. I, I still like remember how I felt and where I was just thinking, I think I'm going to do something with this the rest of my life. Mm. Wow. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of that was like this realization that I'd carried a childhood strategy into my primary adult identity. And that was like jarring. Like, am I, you know, one way to... At least back then, I was especially thinking, like, am I have I just been living one ninth of my capacity? So I was just consumed by this idea of my potential. What else am I capable of? 
And I probably have been playing small. I'm really believing that, or just seeing that now, and I've been half-assing my, half my life <laughs> and, and to this point, you know? So, yeah. So do you remember any specific traits that you felt you, you really resonated with? Yeah, this false humility was a big one um, in that I used to say very proudly, I'm only as strong and as wise and as courageous and as cool and as whatever is, is the people I surround myself with. On my own, no, I could not have any of that. It wasn't allowed to bear any of that on my own as myself. You know, it had to be externally. And that's, that's where my significance was. Yeah, that was definitely an aspect. You know, passive aggression. Uh, I remember the lady that was teaching said that they're, the nines tend to be the most stubborn of all the types. And I think that can be true. I think everybody can be stubborn. I think there can be any person with a type that can be more stubborn than me. But I get the like the, the framework of the nine uh, presenting as highly stubborn. In that I anytime desire arises, that's me, that's called it's an invitation to like be embodied. It's an invitation to participate in the world, you know, uh, as a part of the human species like everybody else does. And that feels like too much. And so um, whenever somebody asks me to do that, I feel this level of like, nope, 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 because I should have been the one that, you know, said it, not you, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that passive aggression piece. Um, I can, uh, can I just on, touch, but, I, I, yeah. can I just touch on the um, stubbornness, right? So yeah. it is a reputation that nines have and I, I agree with you. Yes, it's true. And it's not exclusive to nines, right? But uh, in, in the classic Enneagram, the vice associated with point nine, it's typically described as sloth, but what it really was, was, uh, you know, uh, aditya, which is uh, resistance to change, okay? So there's this deep-seated resistance to change that comes up. They can seem like stubbornness, you know, so uh, for what it's worth. Totally. I, that, yeah. I don't think my mouth can make the same sound you just did. Um, I've been but, hanging out with Maria Jose. And, <laughs> <you know. laughs> but my favorite definition of acedia uh, is resistance oh. to the transforming demands of love. Because yeah. I pronounced it wrong, and that's why you said it. So I, what did I say? Yeah, thank you. So I don't know. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I did. I, I think I said aditya when it's acedia. You're right. So thank you. Oh, wow. okay. I didn't even hear okay. it until you said it. Yeah. Is that a first for this podcast? Um, Mario was no. wrong. No, no, hardly a first. It's just the, the first. <laughs> it's just the first time I admitted it that I. Uh, that, yeah. So, Craig, can you make sure that the clip that we use is <laughs> it's exactly where Mario says I was wrong? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, let me say yes. this is another. Not, probably this isn't what happened just now, but no. this is another thing that that I that I know um, named uh, a serious like confirming quality of me of nineness in myself is that people very much so feel safe to to be themselves a little bit more than they would around others yeah and so i've had moments where people have introduced me as their best friend and i'm like well what i didn't know we were on that close you know like you you i know all about you because i'm a great listener but you don't know anything about me uh, it's it's wild how many times people have said this is seth my one of my best friends in nashville and i'm i didn't we just meet like two weeks ago what do you mean either like i'm a great listener either i'm a great listener or you don't have that many great friends and i feel sad for you <laughs> so anyway that's a, that's a definitely a quality of of nineness for me is that 
people feel like I hold space very well for people. People feel seen and listened to and heard. Don't ask mm-hmm. my wife, but most <laughs> people would say that about me. Yeah. So, uh, Seth, in your journey of learning about the Enneagram, you've you've read a few books on the Enneagram. Um, you've engaged all the schools. Yeah. yeah. Um, what true. makes awareness to action the better of all of them? <laughs> <laughs> That's an open question, right? <laughs> and, this is the, and this is the point where the listener is going to hear an, an altered version of Seth. Yes. <laughs> With a heavy Chinese accent. Oh, wow. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, no. What, what has been your experience with awareness to action? Um, yeah. And what do you feel like has, has, how has it contributed to your understanding of nineness in the Enneagram? Yeah, I, I really value this question because I, I think it's something other people have said before too, but still for me personally, um, thinking of the type and subtypes, excuse me, as um, verbs, you know, more than more than who we are, like type and subtype is what we do to varying degrees of awareness. For me, that's freed me up to see the Enneagram more in line with the experience of what it what I think what it means to actually be a person, a process. Um, and a, because a process is something that I can actually work on. It's something um, real life and practical. Like I'm all for the spiritual side of the Enneagram as a pastor. But, you know, I think often in, in previous literature and still a lot of the ways that it's um, communicated, there's been a way of using the Enneagram as a spiritual bypass, you know, working with, instead of working with real life. Yeah, so just the practicality of it, you're thinking of it as as a, as a, a verb, um, how we are verbing. Yeah, uh, also, you know, I'd say the, especially the idea of appealing to the strategy, appealing to the ego, uh, appealing to what I'm naturally after, you know, in order to grow, in order to make advancements. You know, peace is what I want, right? But I tend to have a limited and narrow and even distorted, depending on how stressed I am, understanding of peace, I would say. So appealing to peace by asking, how can I get more peace is what I know you, the one way to do that. And, you know, but, and we do that by what? Expanding our definition, right? Yeah, of, and creating a, a healthier or more adaptive yeah. version of peace, right? Exactly. We can, we can have peace without passivity. Right. We, we can, Definitely. We can have peace without that resistance to change and so forth. So. Totally. Can you give us a specific example of what that would look like? Sure can. Um, yes. Uh, no, I was doing um, a workshop for uh, an online community recently, and I was drawing from Jerome Wagner's, some of his content of looking at the type as a polarity, right? So making an I am and I am not list. So if I do that for myself, I am expect. Uh, accepting, I am kind, I am calm, laid back, easygoing. I am not judgmental, mean, disruptive, super expressive and demanding. But I think expanding the definition of peace for me would be to include the I am not words. So what if what if being judgmental was me just stating my opinion? What if being mean was me standing up for myself? And what if being your super express, expressive was just being me, me being my authentic, you know, self here, feeling safe to do that. So that that's an example, I think, of appealing to the strategy, appealing to wanting peace. Well, how can you get more peace? Well, look at the ways in which you distort uh, how you think you might be undermining getting peace in the first place. Yeah, and it always comes down to the fundamental question. Am I expressing this strategy in a way that's causing me and the people around me to suffer? 
or am I doing it in a way that's causing me and the people around me to flourish a bit more, mm-hmm. right? So it's it has nothing to do with whether I'm striving to feel peaceful or not. It's all about how am I doing it and what are the results of what I'm doing it. So when you're striving to feel peaceful, as we have been talking now, um, there are adaptive and maladaptive ways. We've touched on this, but in your specific case, Seth, how does it look like when you feel like you're expressing this desire to feel peaceful in maladaptive ways? For me, I, 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 for me, this relates to, like I said before, about this natural human significance and if I'm able to bear the weight of that or not. Uh, and so like how that gets expressed adaptively or maladaptively is, for me at least, has to do with my, that significance piece. So maladaptively, like striving to feel peaceful I could just list things over and over, I feel like, but it's, um, you know, it's this unaware commitment to self-forgetting, you know, putting other people's needs and agendas always above my own. In fact, sort of minimizing mine, uh, especially in relation to other people's. I think it's, I've said this before, like it's living life uh, as an ambiguous person because anytime there's like some request for effort, it's it's almost like there's a defense that immediately disperses my energy. And and when that happens, it's just uh, like I go looking for myself to <laughs> be here, be fully here, and there's no self to be present with. Yeah, it sounds very uh, zen, and it's it, it's not. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm glad you said that because yeah. it, it can be confused with that concept of no I have heard said that people think nines are more spiritual than others. Yeah, no, that's And that's, that's ridiculous. the only reason why, because it's, yeah. it's not true, but it's, yeah. there's nothing here. And that's the thing we're trying to work on, yeah. <laughs> right. There's, a, yeah. there's a, a saying in Zen Buddhism that the first mistake is to believe that there's a self, the second is to believe that there's not. So there both is right. and isn't. Yeah. yeah, maladaptively striving to feel peaceful, you know, it really is around, I, I would say, just this avoidance of... Knowing what I want, uh, knowing what's important to me, um, any kind of internal development, because to be a person, to be with needs and and uh, desires is what could cause potential disruption because you have your own. And so uh, there's a way that I think I forego the right to happiness because it's a lot easier for you to have yours if I'm not in the way of of you having it. So, you know, it's it's being agreeable and overly accommodating yeah, I don't know. I could keep going. It's it's a it, there's a way that sometimes it's like vicariously trying to embody myself through anything and everything but myself, like bigger personalities or the room that I'm surrounded in with books. It's trying to find this external significance because uh, it's it's just too dangerous to to locate it on my own. That's at least that's I guess how, what comes up for me when you ask maladaptively how striving to feel peaceful. In addition to that, there's something that um, I really remember hearing it the first time from Helen Palmer that stroke struck me. (laughs) Careful. Um, That really struck me. Um, She said that uh, the nine is this vacillation between compliance and defiance, which is the eight and the one. and I, and I would really agree with that. I do feel that's the tension. I feel like I'm being stretched and pulled in both directions. And so I've either got to be compliant and go along or I've got to just, you know, uh, stand my ground and nobody messes with me, you know. And, uh, there's, and that doesn't leave any room for me to have uh, space for just, hey, you know what? 
what do I want? <laughs> yeah, so on, on that topic, yeah. how does that look when it's adaptive? How do you find a place where you're none of those two things and when you don't avoid stuff and you're not always agreeable? How does it look like for you? Yeah, you know, I, I'm one of my... What comes up for me is one of my mantras is I'm committed to having a voice in this world because I, I would say adaptively striving to feel peaceful is realizing that I'm an essential part of the whole, that the whole system actually doesn't work without the contribution that I include, you know, that I can make. Yeah, like there's a way in which peace between two people also requires me standing up for myself and sharing my opinion, which actually doesn't only give me some kind of peace, be like what's the word, like calm, I would say just calm between us. What it actually gives is respect between us because now I know where you're coming from. Now you have something to say and I can, whether you agree with me or not, at least I know you have something to say. Like you're um, looking for resolution when actually it's respect that you desire. I want both, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure, I sure. think on my good days, I'd be like, yeah, I want, I want resolution, but I, but I do want you to know that I have just as much value as you. And I recognize that, that it's, that only happens when I show you my side of what you're thinking, your angle on this too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To kind of further press into some examples uh, in your life, when it comes to the connecting points, striving to feel outstanding, striving to feel secure. How do those show up for you? Um, where do you see those both adaptively and maladaptively? There's that concept of making, I always get the thing mixed up. Whenever there's two of something, I always get it backwards the first time. Um, mountains into molehills. Is that right? Molehills into mountains, right? So molehills, yeah, yeah, see, I yes. did it. Yeah, you did. did it wrong. Yeah. No, um, that is a tendency for me um, in that I remember uh, I was contracted a couple years ago for uh, this gig in Florida and the weather was bad and the flight, the fl I did the flight through a third party. And then I, because of that, I didn't find out that the flight was canceled until last minute. You know, I just found myself going into like projecting all the worst things that could happen. And like, what do I do? What should I call them? And, and in that moment, I was projecting my significance, my ability, my personal authority to be able to figure this out on my own. And I was putting it on my wife. And I was putting it, in a sense, on like even, I still did this in a nine way. I didn't directly call them. I, I sent them an email. Hey, uh-oh, my, my, uh, my flight was canceled. What do you think I should do? The thing is, is they said, it's fine. We'll figure it out another time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I just remember how, um, because it was so last minute, and I just felt like there was going to be uh, such a massive disruption because of me. And that's a way that I maladaptively, I would say, moved into that, stri striving to feel secure. That, that, that's like more of an intense version, I would say. Um, but, I, but I think it can show up as like n um, staying comfortable. Yeah, like uh, not probably taking chances when there's opportunities to do that. Uh, I can't tell you how many times in the past I have sabotaged, self-sabotaged myself. Uh, because it just it felt considerably easier and safer to not uh, show people how impressive I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, maladaptively. Yeah, uh, Seth, I'm always intrigued with nines because there can be this flipping of the switch that happens 
where I take myself out of the spotlight. I see everybody else getting attention. I start to feel insignificant. I neglect the strategy of striving to feel outstanding. And then I get to the point where it's like, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm sick of it. Pay attention to me. Notice me. Jump into the spotlight kind of thing. And so I've seen nines, again, sort of flip this switch where all of a sudden they go to the other extreme and it becomes all about them, right? I I demand my due. And then they start to see themselves in the spotlight and feel uncomfortable and jump back out of it again. Can can you relate to that? Do you have any experience of that phenomenon? I'm trying to think of a specific, you know, because of being an artist, I've been in like the literal spotlight in front of right. thousands of people um, at a time, multiple times. <laughs> See, even telling you that feels so. <laughs> uh, like, wow, this guy's arrogant. Holy cow. <laughs> Let's say it one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> uh, did I tell you, I read 80 books last year. <laughs> See, mm. that, just, uh, that, that, that actually, sometimes that's maybe a way that it could show up where people are talking about, I don't know, some topic or the, the Enneagram, <laughs> for example. And I want to sit down and say, I have uh, 150 books on the Enneagram and I've read most of them and you have no idea what you're talking about. That's yeah. why we had you on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so what is this Enneagram thing? Because <laughs> uh, uh, I've only yeah. read three, four books on it. And I, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I decided to start a podcast. Yeah. Typical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Is that, is that kind of... Yeah, I, I think is it is. And, and it can be... Like I, I normally can stand back. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, somebody's just being an idiot with it. And so I feel this, this need to really showcase, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's an aspect of it. It can also be about this uh, sort of demandingness about getting my needs met, right? Mm. Um, no, go make me a sandwich. You know, I'm tired of taking care of everybody else, you, you know, sort of thing that can, that can come up. So curious. Okay. There's probably some examples about home life with my wife that I'm, you're probably not privy to, but yes, it's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> Could it ever express itself in a more passive aggressive way and not so go make me a sandwich but like no boy I'm hungry <laughs> totally probably yeah. uh, it's less direct at least ex- examples that I can come up with passive aggression in that I can um, I, I've had plenty of moments where I will present something that I know is impressive because I know it, the room is just sounding like you know, and then, but I don't do it in a direct way. I'll like, what have you guys thought about this? I do it in a way that's like nine-ish, you know, but it is obviously way better and way more impressive than the limited way that you thought you were, you were talking about it. So yes, I, yeah, I'll do it passive aggressively. Talk about self-deprecate. So talk about self-deprecation. Self-deprecation. Oh, actually I remember, um, Oscar Achazo in one of his many Enneagons that I think I heard you guys talk about recently was the Enneagram of Traps, which I'm a fan of. And for the nine, it's self-abasement. And I think uh, it's another way of saying self-deprecation. But it's the trap in that for the nine is that uh, I feel so great in not including myself for the sake of you feeling, you know, okay, yeah. insignificant. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I I have to completely get out of the way. What's one way to say it? Like 
I substitute comfort and belonging for love and worth, or maybe say we around. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but but just uh, I would rather settle for the most minimal thing because on some level I don't believe that I have value, and and I might not even directly say that or am that like cognizant of that belief, but you'll see it show up in the way that I act or even talk about myself or minimize myself. I minimize all day long, especially when it's about something that might make me sound knowledgeable or 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 anything that could get in the way of you not sounding knowledgeable, yeah. you know? I'll, I'll minimize myself and I'll put pillows around my sentences. Is that why you... Great movie. Sorry, is that why you use so many quotes, Seth, and not talk like using your own voice? Well, I would say it probably is, it probably started that way and it probably can be that. But I also have, I think I've come to terms with the fact that that's also a way of sharing my voice too. Because I, I don't know many people that know as many quotes as I do. And it's a way that I can distill lots of information and big ideas into one thing. And that helps me get conversations started sometimes. But yeah, no, there there is something for sure that I have this note that you could scroll with your thumb for 10 minutes through quotes. And uh, that helps me connect ideas in my head. But it, but it is a way to like, uh, hey, what do you think about this? Because it's not me that said it, you know? Mm. See, I have that same list, but under each you. quote, it says Mario Sakura. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> uh, um, well, <laughs> seriously, uh, to the self-deprecation thing, I mean, that is whenever I coach a nine client, uh, that that's the very first thing I have them work on, yeah. right? Is mm -hmm. to start to pay attention to self-deprecating comments or actions and simply delete them, right? You don't have to go to the other dimension and start saying, hey, I'm awesome and beat your chest and all these sort of things, but just take out the self-deprecation and move on. It is very typical that nines use things like, yeah, I'm not the smartest one here, or yeah. you know a lot better, a lot more than I do, or things like that. Right. It's what we ask them to stop saying because that kind of cancels. Yeah. We preface. We preface yes. all the time. Yeah, yeah. qualifiers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. My wife says I preface the preface about the preface, and then she's like, "What are we talking about? Get to the point." <laughs> well, as yeah. you know, Desjardins. And I mean, wife, yeah. I said, mean, Creek is what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Another example, you know, just to remember, you know, as I gave a couple, but I, I remember one client I worked with who was a nine. He was, a, you know, a world class engineer, right? He was a very senior person. And he would always start things with, well, I'm just a dumb engineer, but here's what I think, right? And everybody in the room knew he was the best engineer in the room. And it just felt awkward and and it undermined him right uh, which is the and then what i have seen with nine clients very often is they get to a certain level and they just can't get to that next spot you know they just can't get from director to vice president or vice president to ceo or whatever it is and they don't understand why and it's usually because all this self-deprecation they've done has planted these little seeds of doubt in other people's minds about them, right? Well, if you keep telling me I'm just a dumb engineer, there's part of my brain that's starting to think, well, maybe you are just a dumb engineer, 
right? Um, you know, so uh, it's it's really an important thing to work on. But here's a question I have for you. So you're a pastor, and a pastor is a position of authority, right? It's somebody who's, you know, taking a role of prominence in some way. And I've been executive coaching for 25 years now, and when I look back on the clients I've worked with, the three types that I've worked with most, eights, nines, and threes, right, in senior roles, leadership roles. And people are always surprised to hear that nines would be there. But nines are very often good leaders. They're very often effective in leadership roles. So assuming you're effective in your leadership role there, Seth, what do you think makes <laughs> that the case? Yeah, I, in a different way than I would say probably obviously eights do. I think that we empower people to embody themselves. You know, I think we kind of, <laughs> we give all of our effort that should be or could be us embodying our own selves and just place it on other people. So there's, there's a way that I think um, probably... Yeah, I just give people the freedom to really be themselves. And I think that means they feel they can express whatever it is that, you know, there's a non-judgmental experience people get from me. And I think I just think that means people feel safe. And so the environment is one uh, in which usually the f- people feel more familial than, I don't know, we're like we business. This is a business that's being run, you know, I, mean, I think. At least for me in my role, that's ex- how I how I would do it. How I would say, probably, it feels. But yeah, I don't know what I'm getting at your question. Yeah, yeah. So I I think there are some other more active qualities. And again, I can't speak to your situation because I mm-hmm. you know, don't know enough about it. But the nines that I work with tend to be, yes, they make people feel safe, right? For sure, they make people feel comfortable, right? There's just this calming effect that they tend to have on people. They have this calming effect on people, but there's also very often an active ability to build consensus, right? So it's it's not just, oh, people just feel this thing, but there's a strategic activity going on behind it, right? Of saying, okay, let me bring these folks together in a way. For sure, yeah. There's a, I have a natural talent at bringing together the common good what is it that we all do agree on because we couldn't see it on our own yeah 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 you see you're saying this and he's saying this maybe you're just in this different language but here's what he's yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah i i think holding space for an environment that feels opposing yeah. sometimes is something that other people don't do like i do yeah, yeah. great so seth with all the books that you have read how many are they about the enneagram <laughs> Uh, I mean, just that whole shelf over there. There's, I which don't nobody know. here can see. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> we'll trust you. I, I, I probably have 150 books on the okay. Enneagram, but yeah. so about type nine. What are the main misconceptions about the type that you have found? What are the things that you really dislike about what's said about type nine? Um, you know, personally, I really. I hate it when people are like, oh, he's the little nine who doesn't know what he wants and needs. Let's help him. Let's insert ourselves into his space and, you know, tell him what he needs. Uh, that's what it feels like. Um, like I'm this little animal that's wounded 
uh, and and needs your assistance for some reason. Uh, when you know, actually, maybe I don't have an opinion about everything like you do. Maybe you're the one that needs to have less opinions. <laughs> you're talking to Mario here? Uh, not you. Not no. Not either of you. Don't worry. Yeah, uh, I think that is especially a misconception that that we're just because we don't speak up right away, we have less um, value. Uh, and I, I will say that. You know, the more unaware the person we do train other people to view us that way. That is for sure. But I don't have less value to share. Uh, actually, I think maybe sometimes I have something even deeper to share because you haven't gone to the place that I've been swimming in for quite a while. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a the misconception of laziness. Hear me, I'm lazy at times. Uh, although I did just book a bu- buy a book called The Myth of Laziness, and I'm excited to... <laughs> dispel that dispel that maybe myth. some confirmation uh, bias happening yeah, right there but <laughs> um yeah i just think it's less lazy and more um there's a there's a tendency not people have from the nine place of of believing they have what it takes to maintain all the effort yeah so it's not i don't think it's laziness i just think it's again like i said earlier in the conversation there's something in me that immediately disperses my energy uh when there's uh effort that's required of me that feels too much or I haven't done that before, you know? So it's like, I don't even think about the fact that I could I could do that, you know? So I just don't think it's lazy. I just, I think it's in the, I, I like to tell people, what's the thing that you do that, that other people don't understand? That's my version of lazy. I'll say too, like just even when people say, oh, where are all my nines at? That just bugs me. That bugs me so much. First off, and I think you guys would agree with me, there's no such thing as a nine. There's a person, there's an individual who has some like patterned way they express themselves, but there's no such thing as a nine. Um, and I just think when people confuse a person for this type, you don't let me be anything else than the idea you have in your head. And that limits me. And I hate being limited I hate being um, minimized. I'm the one that minimizes <laughs> me, not you. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The, the laziness thing is really, really important, and I'm glad you brought it out. Um, there is this perceptions of nines being meek. And one of the things that anybody studying the Enneagram has to understand is that the characters portrayed in the books often come from a self-selected environment, right? There are certain kinds of people who tend to go to self-help sort of workshops, right? Spiritual retreats, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a section of the population. And you might see uh, they're, they're more likely to be certain characteristics among the nines in that sample. But when you go out into the corporate world, you start to realize that Nines work as hard as anyone else. My, my father-in-law is a nine, and this guy, he's in his early 80s now, and he still works six, seven days a week, right? I mean, mm. this guy has worked since he was a kid and loves to work, and he's very much a nine. So that's that's one of the big myths. And, and I agree with you, too, that sort of labeling is so irritating and frustrating and demeaning. So, you know, Maria Jose and I have known each other. I think Maria Jose popped up on LinkedIn today. We've been connected on LinkedIn for 12 years. Um, Mm. And, you know, so we've been working together a long time. 
and we talk frequently. You know, yeah, this year is thirteen years. Thirteen, yeah, okay. So we we talk frequently, but we never reference our enneagram types in a conversation, right? And mm. when we're out socially, the last thing we care about is somebody's enneagram type. You know, we could never, we would just never have that conversation. So yeah, Seth, as we're talking about growth and just learning how to better use your strategy in, in adaptive ways. What what have you found in the past few years to be really helpful in um, using your strategy in a better way and just in growing and evolving and expanding who you are and how you see the world? Uh-huh. First off, I'll say there there usually is, from the people I've witnessed, but also my own personal experience, the beginning starts with a a grieving process of how you've forgotten yourself for so long and how you've taught people to forget you because this unaware need for peace means I just don't show up. I keep don't, I keep not showing up. That's what sent me into therapy more than anything else, you know, personal and, and couples. But yeah. So starting there, uh, I would say just uh, allowing yourself to, to grieve the amount of time you've spent, um, forgetting yourself because you're in the way and even viewing yourself as, yeah, not valuable. You don't matter as much as other people. Allowing yourself to even locate that that belief within yourself and then grieving it. Uh, the second thing I would say is usually um, the effort required to develop yourself, to, to do something you've never done before, to, uh, I would just say, even participate fully in an embodied way in the world, which is what feels, I would say, so difficult for nines. It feels impossible because it feels like I have to maintain that the rest of my life. How do I do that? That feels impossible because it's never ending. Uh, and also, I'll just say, one of the most important things for me that I've ever done is building what's sometimes termed a rule of life. Um, and that that just means structuring your life and putting putting the things you are trying to attend to into bite-sized, reasonable amounts of energy that you're using. Um, because that will make uh, what feels impossible a bit more accessible. Going to the gym is important for everybody, right? Exercising, attending to your physicality. But I'll say, uh, for me especially, exerting myself physically is a way that I find out what capacity I do have. And that's a, like a way of inspiring myself to see what I have not yet tapped into. And then I just feel like when you've like woken up some level of your capacity, there's some part of me that's never wanted to look back. Like, well, if I can do that, well, then I can do this. Yeah. I'll also, like, have some kids. That'll be motivating. <laughs> No, get uh, you out of bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would say uh, most of the time, a lot of my life in the past has been externally motivated. And the only way for me to actually maintain the life that I want was to find internal motivation. And um, that is about finding my own personal value and not projecting it on other people, you know, to find it there. So um, that's just, and that's me finding, like, checking in with myself like huh today i did some kick-ass work and only kick-ass people could do kick-ass work um <laughs> you know so maybe i do have some value and i'm just reminding myself of that and uh yeah 
I'm, I'm just riffing at this point. I forget mm-hmm. the question you asked, but yeah. It was a dumb question, but you did a great job at yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, pull, pulling a good answer out of it. What you've described there is often what we um, suggest for nines related to the the point nine and the connecting points, right? So you talked about what we would call evidence gathering, right? Which Mm. we usually relate to point six. I always tell my nine clients, I want you to write down a list of things you've achieved, accomplished, right? Things that you're good at, right? Things that you bring to the table because nines do forget about them. And there usually is a pretty long list that they're not really aware of. There's also an issue around purpose, which we usually put as the, uh, as what we call the accelerator at point three of figuring out why am I doing this, right? Giving myself a reason. And it's an internally motivated purpose rather than an externally mandated purpose. Hmm. Uh, And the other thing we often recommend is some practice of generativity, right? Some giving back to of others. You've talked about allowing or empowering actually is the word you used, which is a much better word, empowering people to, you know, empower themselves, right? To embody who they are. So mm. you're hitting the right practices in what you're describing there. Right. Yeah, I I, I do often when I'm sitting with somebody that I, I recognize pretty quickly, does the nine thing like me, uh, those are the, especially the moments where I feel like generativity is a, a thing for me. Uh, and it's usually like, oh gosh, this is how I, this is how I come <laughs> off or, or like how I have once felt. It, it is, it's rough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so rough. So the last section of this episode, we want to touch on uh, the nines subtypes. And uh, Mario, why don't you go ahead and just give us a quick descript- description of those three. Yeah. So the strategy is striving to feel peaceful. And the strategy is a way of meeting the needs of the instinctual bias. Okay, that's one way to think about it. So the instinctual bias is what's important to us in life, what we value, preserving, things related to preserving, things related to navigating, things related to transmitting. Uh, For preserving, it's my physical comfort and well-being. For navigating, it's my identity in the group and understanding the group, being able to navigate it, right? Figuring out how this group works so I can find my way in it and find my place. Peacefully. Peacefully, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, without without ruffling feathers, without alienating people, without making others feel less, if I can. The transmitting domain, so the transmitting nine is an interesting character, and I think, I don't know, uh, Mario Jose, I don't know, do, do we think this is the least misund- misunderstood of the 27 subtypes, the transmitting nine? The most misunderstood. Um, yeah, the most misunderstood. Yes. Yeah, did I say the least? Yeah. yeah. So the most <laughs> misunderstood. Yes. Because it's sort of part three and part nine. And so it's, I want to transmit, but I want to do it in a self-deprecating, peaceful way. Um, if you want to see this character, watch old tapes of uh, videos of uh, Ronald Reagan as president, mm-hmm. right? Classic. You know, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. He was, when, when I remember giving a uh, training in Spain years ago, and there was some uh, students from Russia there. And when I mentioned Ronald Reagan as striving to feel peaceful, their heads almost exploded, right? I mean, they just, you know, uh, couldn't see that. My other favorite example of that is uh, Bruce Springsteen, right? Um, who I've seen identified as a six, but he's not. He's a transmitting nine. And they call him the boss, 
right? And they don't call him the boss just to be nice. They call him the boss because he's the boss of the group. And if you watch Springsteen, he's a consummate performer and so forth. Um, but when you can really see this in his uh, Netflix um, special about the Broadway show, self-deprecation all over the place, right? That's kind of his mode. So the preserving nine is all about maintaining peacefulness in my environment, okay? Steady, consistent, cocoon sort of environment. The navigating nine is about not alienating people. It's about getting along with others. It's about flowing through the group dynamics. And the transmitting nine is about, you know, expressing myself, but in a way that's kind of self-deprecating and doesn't seem like I'm expressing myself. Also more but assertively the, than the other two subtypes absolutely. of the nine. Yes, absolutely. The dilemma they all face is getting lost into something. The nine, the preserving nine, tends to lose their identity into their environment, right? They just, they just sort of blend in. Okay, they, it's, it's almost like they, I'm going to be really careful about this, but I'm going to come out and say it. It's like they can almost become a piece of the furniture, right? Because they just, you know, want to settle into a place. The navigating nine loses their identity in the group. Okay, it's, who am I within this group? How do I stand out? Where do I stand out? How do I not alienate? Uh, the transmitting nine tends to lose themselves when they do in the significant other. Okay, this is kind of emerging with the um, the desired other. Now, preserving nines will relate to doing that, which is why some preserving nines misidentify as a one-to-one or sexual nine. But it's a very different quality uh, that you can see. So that's that's a that's a, a thumbnail of the three subtypes. Seth, any? Response. Now, I know, you know, you and I had a yeah. conversation about the subtypes. So, you know, uh, yeah. I, I don't want to put you on any spot to talk about this if, you know, uh, if you're still, uh, you know, working through it or, but, you know, what, what would you right. like to say on this? Yeah. So demanding, Mario. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> um, you know, off the record, no, on the record, uh, I'll say I've had a journey with it, with the instinctual biases, the instincts for. Most of the seven years I've been learning the Enneagram because, you know, there's lots of views on this and I've read all of them. And, you know, be, that's exactly why it's probably been difficult to find my, myself, to locate myself because I've gotten lost in all of them, uh, as a good nine would do. And yeah, I initially looked at the, what would be termed the social nine that that is where I initially hung out for a while and then moved into the the space uh once I, I remember when I first bought uh Mario's book reading this this whole new uh wild theory on the Enneagram thinking what in the world this is different is this even the Enneagram um and uh just we still yeah. have those questions yeah people people are still asking that yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, that was actually the first time that I thought, hmm, transmitting, that makes sense. And it, it actually, for a period of time, that's where I hung out and have been hanging out since, uh, since I stumbled, uh, stumbled into uh, Mario's work. And uh, at this point, I will say, you know, sharing a little vulnerably, Mario and I had a, a conversation on the interwebs uh, a couple weeks ago. And 
kindly, he had some questions for me that, that allowed me to open up thinking potentially of uh, maybe not uh, my pattern of, of expression being what I thought it has been. And, and I'm open to that. And at, that, at this point, I'm still taking, I'm still on that journey. But I, am, I could potentially see your reasoning. I could potentially see um, navigating as the primary, as the, uh, I forget exactly the term you use, but the preferred, is that, is that right? We call it the, the uh, zone of enthusiasm. Zone of it, yes, yeah, the preferred strategy, zone of enthusiasm. I can't get all y- y'all's word <laughs> straight in my head. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that is kind of where I'm at at the moment. Like, I know I've done a lot of work, personal work and development. And, I, I'm happy to to uh, explore some of this like, in the moment with you guys if if you want to. So it's interesting because I mean, first I want to highlight your openness to explore this because it requires a lot of integrity. You have a podcast. You, I mean, are out there talking about the Enneagram, teaching it, and it requires courage to do this. But I think it's the best thing to do, not only for yourself, of course, but for the people that you work with. So I want to acknowledge that. There were several things that you mentioned during our conversation today that struck me as navigating. And it is, the, for example, when you were saying things like, you don't know who I am. I only share a part of, of who I am. And like that awareness of not sharing everything and there's something that it's mine, that there's something that I want you to see and I manage that, that's very navigating. Uh, I resonate with that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And most of the conversations or the descriptions and the things that you mentioned had to do with other people. It was very relational. so that also struck me as very navigating. There was nothing, I mean, not a lot about legacy or things like that. And if there was, there was this inner conflict about it, you know. I, and this thing also, and I've been working with clients lately and with myself about this potential I have and how do I, do I accomplish that. And that's a very typical navigating inner conflict of how do I show the world who I am and my value and I, it could, I could be falling prey of confirmation bias here but um, I have not had many chances to talk with you so kind of I'm fresh I think I'm fresh coming mm-hmm. at it with a fresh mind and I saw uh, several things that struck me as navigating yeah I will say um what just came to mind is that I see myself more so, I see the, it's harder to locate myself actually in the, this, the navigating arena. It's actually pretty easy to see myself, to see the preserving instinct as indifferent for me and to see the uh, transmitting uh, as something that's hard to do. It's just harder to locate the first one, which is interesting. But, but you know, like I, I definitely... I have a pretty strong desire to, to leave a legacy. I just, I'm uh, not entirely sure how to do that. And 
Well, you're muted, Mario, so I'll I'll oh, use Mario, this as an opportunity to continue saying what I want to say. <laughs> 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 uh, but 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 no no. Uh, I was thinking while you were talking that so much of what you were describing as nine-ish is also very similar to navigating. So that might be mm. one of the reasons why it's hard to see the navigating because it might be seen or perceived as nine-ish, some mm -hmm. of the things at least. That makes sense. I will say too, uh, there is a part of me that would rather sacrifice my competency than allow people to learn from my example live i'm i am it, it's not 100% comfortable for me to you know admit to the fact that i don't know and supposedly i'm uh some authority in the enneagram world uh that's not super comfortable but at the same time you know what i like i'm after growing more than i care about what other people think um to an extent uh, i just what i want more than anything is to be the best dad and husband and me I can be. And if that means letting go of some level of comfort, then whatever. I wanted to say some other words. Um, yeah, so uh, it is interesting um, that I, I just, I would, there's a part of me that wants to sacrifice in order to like be teaching if possible to people that are listening. <laughs> I, I knew you would kind of jump on the legacy thing as soon as Maria Jose said it. And... <laughs> And I know it's there in you, but it's not something you spoke about, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and this is often what happens in our zone of inner conflict, right? I thought we had another thirty minutes. <laughs> I was coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and so for me, and again, I don't want to impose any perspective. I, I was thinking as I was talking, or I'm sorry, as you were talking, if I was punching the tickets on my navigating bingo card you know, all the boxes would have been filled. But when you when you write the bingo card yourself, you know, it's kind of easy to see these things. So I, I don't want to fall into confirmation bias either, like Maria Jose said, mm -hmm. okay? But something came to my mind um, to help understand what happens with the Navigating Nine, this sort of blending in. I remember um, I was doing a session with a, a group of engineers and it was coffee break. And so one of the engineers, you know, pours himself some coffee and then he pours some milk into it. And somebody asked him, you know, if he wanted a stir and to, to stir it up. And he said, no, nah, I let convection do the work. Right? <laughs> Meaning that he knew that if he just let the coffee sit, that the milk would sort of disperse itself. Right. There's this evening out that happens regarding to temperature, right? Because both elements are trying to meet the same temperature. And that's almost what I see in navigating nines is this tendency to, you know, sort of blend in with the group and then be very frustrated by it at times. Right. Uh, this, you know, what can feel like a loss of identity mm -hmm. that they really wrestle with. And it's identity in the, in the group very often. Yeah. Yeah. No, I resonate with that on in smaller groups when I don't feel like I have something to contribute that's impressive or or really like a real contribution yeah. or that's that's something that will in some way affect the person that I'm or the group that I'm I don't know. Only it, it just I, I have a few memories recently of just feeling like 
what's wrong with me? Why can't I participate like everybody else is? I'll also say that when, you know, because you talked about performing in front of what, tens of thousands of people. Um, millions. millions <laughs> yes. uh, what we find with navigators is that when they're playing the role, when there's a defined role that they have, they can step into that transmitting space much easier. Comfortably. Right. Yeah. Comfortably. I mean, people people meet me in the trainings and you know that I do or a talk that I do or on the podcast, and they think, this guy seems like a transmitter to me because he's always talking. Right? Well, it's my job here, right? But in other, outside of this, that sort of goes away. Yeah, the, 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 one last thing I'll say is how you have highlighted your ability to listen. I think that that's, Usually very navigating. Um, yeah. It's, why are you laughing? We, we have, what? Well, because we have transmitting nine friends that we love and we would not say the same thing about them. And they wouldn't <laughs> about themselves. Yeah, they wouldn't either, right. Not as one of their strengths. If that is a quality specific, more specific, um, I know, it, I, I would I would think it is just even nineness, but more specifically for navigating, um, I do catch myself semi-often in my meetings of like, okay, you're talking a lot now, let them go. Yeah, but that awareness, it's navigating. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the Transmitters right don't have yeah. that awareness that much. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to turn this into, no, Seth, you know, yeah. you're, you're this, right? And uh, so, um, but yeah, it's... I'm, I'm not, I'm not the, 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 whatever the description you, you said earlier of the nine, the completely... <laughs> Blank Slate or whatever you said. I forget how you named it. I'm not that guy. So I can Furniture hold my own here. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, I, it was I, something else. I get was, that, but we're just significant want to be other. respectful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah we, we, yeah. we just want to be, you know, respectful to you and, yeah. uh, you know, not, it, it's it's an interesting conversation. And I'll, I'll reiterate what Maria Jose said, that it's something admirable that you would even be open to the conversation, right? Because... So many people, uh, if they're in a position of being a teacher, would not do that. And that's something we try to model as well. You mentioned that you want to show people that, I mean, that is a good thing. And we think so as well. And we have explored, well, I have. I don't not, don't think that Mario has explored other types. Uh, but we do change our minds regarding the types we think other people are. And I think it's a good thing. It requires integrity. And I think it's part of what we want to model. So, so Seth, what's one thing that you want people to leave with that it, you really like about being a nine? There is especially a quality that I feel like has comes natural for me. And it is already what we've sort of talked about, but, but I've also cultivated it even more so. Um, this and I'm prefacing the preface. You see, you don't even know what I'm talking about yet. There is within uh, attachment science. There is uh, you're probably familiar with it. And I'm prefacing again. Damn it! Um, <laughs> Spit it out. <laughs> uh, yeah. What do you um, like about being a nine? Uh, what do you like about yourself? Yeah, yeah. In attachment science, there is this <laughs> idea of a secure uh, attachment, and that is primarily around people feeling safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And I think my presence allows for people to experience uh, maybe a level of security they haven't um, before, a level of feeling seen and safe. And I think this is probably why people have 
most of my life told me things I've never told anybody else. And I feel incredibly privileged um, and honored and um, grateful to dignify somebody else's humanity because I'm maybe the first person that has held that quality of space for them. Well, Seth, thank you so much for showing up with all the wisdom and integrity and vulnerability and all the things uh, for this episode. It was, uh, it was a really, really great episode. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, for sure, Seth. Thanks for having and me. I, I just want to reiterate to our readers to go look for... Readers. Oh, readers. Did I say that? Yeah. If, you, if there are any readers in the group... Um, <laughs> if you're reading the transcript right now. <laughs> for our listeners, uh, go to uh, Seth's... Um, Instagram page, um, mm-hmm. uh, integrated, Enneagram. integrated. It's uh, mm-hmm. really good stuff, and uh, look for him on Fathoms. Uh, now that we've exhausted uh, the Fathoms um, uh, roster. team roster, you guys are going to have to hire another co-host. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but this draws a conclusion to our Shark Week, uh, you know, hosting <laughs> of uh, the Fathoms guys. That's uh, yeah, awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.